Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, during the preaching time this morning and also next week, we are going to be focusing on the subject of the authority of Scripture. And as a warm-up to that, what I wanted to do is take us back to the 17th century, uh, in fact, to the 1640s, when something called the Westminster Confession of Faith was written and also ratified. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith is a very important confession uh, for Protestants, and it comes to us Baptists by way of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. And in the very first section of that confession, which deals with the Holy Scriptures, uh, we have subsection 4, and it speaks to our subject this morning. Again, the subject is the authority of the Scriptures. So here's how that part of the Westminster Confession reads. It says, The authority of the Holy Scripture, for which it ought to be believed and obeyed, depends not upon the testimony of any man or church, but wholly upon God, who is truth itself, the author thereof, and therefore it is to be received because it is the word of God. Now, just to highlight in that statement, the close connection that the authors of the statement made between the authority of God himself and the authority of God's word, the Bible. I wonder if you noticed that as we went through it. The idea here is that the authority of God's word is not dependent on anything higher than itself because God himself breathed out God's word, and of course, God is the highest authority that there is. Well, with that little look at part of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we're going to return now to worship through music. Coming to you live uh, for this portion of the service, at least, and uh, as we prepare to uh, look at the things of Scripture, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are people who are longing and waiting for the redemption of this world, for you to free this world from its bondage to, uh, to, to decay and bring it into the glorious freedom uh, that you have promised. Lord, we are awaiting the moment when you will undo the chaos and mend your creation and bring about the new creation. But for now, Lord, we have your word as your people. You have given us your Holy Spirit. We have the risen Jesus who walks with us every hour of every day. And we are so thankful for all of the provisions that you have given us. And now, Lord, as we consider the things of your word again, we pray your Holy Spirit's help, uh, alertness, uh, that you would have your way and your pleasure this morning, Lord, and do the work that you desire to do in us. We pray these things in the mighty and in the powerful and saving name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, last Sunday, if you were with us, we closed uh, the sermon with a series of rhetorical questions. And the very last rhetorical question that we asked last week was this question, could it be, could it be 
that the Bible has been exhaled into our world by God himself. And of course, the entire sermon last week sought to establish the fact that, yes, indeed, all 66 books of the Bible have been breathed out by God. Well, the logical conclusion that follows, if indeed God has breathed out the Old and New Testaments, the logical conclusion that follows is that the Old and New Testaments carry the authority of God. If the Bible is God-breathed, exhaled by God, then it has to carry God's authority. In the words of Sinclair Ferguson, quote, if the scriptures are God-breathed, they carry God's authority. All they say on every subject on which they speak will be authoritative, close quote. This week and next week, our focus is going to be on the authority of the Bible. And admittedly, I want to tell you up front, these two Sundays will be more about uh, teaching than they will be about preaching, per se. I want to lay that fact out as plainly as possible as we begin this week and next week will be more about teaching than preaching. What we're going to do in these next two weeks is to take a highly, and I do mean highly, abbreviated tour through five centuries of history. And we're doing this to show how human confidence in the authority of Scripture over those centuries has been on something of a roller coaster ride from a firm confidence in Scripture's authority to almost no confidence to a regained confidence and then back in our day to a diminished confidence. And it's my overarching hope and aim in presenting this that God will bring us to appreciate our Bible even more than we already do. Uh, That we will come to value what we have in the scriptures uh, to cherish more the reading and the teaching and preaching of the Bible. Now, as we begin here, I want to talk about the very concept of authority just for a moment. There is a strong aversion to the concept of authority in our world today. For example, there are now many people who've bought into the idea, promoted especially by the French postmodern philosopher Michel Foucault, many people who've bought into Foucault's idea that power is everyone's modus operandi in every area, every level of life. The idea or the hypothesis that, that many people have simply imbibed from Foucault whether they know they've imbibed it from him or not, the idea is that everybody desires power. 
and that this desire for power is the, the, the thing that is causing people to, be, to behave in the ways that they are behaving. Personally, I think that such a conception of human life or such an assumption around human life is absolutely wrong-headed and even perverse. I agree with Douglas Murray when he points out in his most recent book that, that sure, everybody knows that power exists as a force in the world. Nobody would want to deny that, but so do things like forgiveness and love and charity. And further, says Murray, if, if you were to ask most people, most people out on the street today, what matters in their lives, very few would say power. But all of this is somewhat beside the point. The point we're making here is that this idea that everybody is after power, it's an idea that's alive and well in the air of our world today. And because of that, there is a real aversion today to the very idea of authority because authority and power are so closely related. I think that if you were to go down to one of our local university campuses tomorrow and say to an average group of students, did you know that the God of the Bible has absolute governmental, moral, and intellectual authority over you? Well, you may get strange looks at the very least, you may even get much more than strange looks coming back at you. And yet, and yet, as Christian believers, we are convinced, aren't we, that it is indeed the case that God has authority over every part of every person's life. The creator, simply by virtue of the fact that he is creator, has authority over everyone and everything that he has created, including you and including me and including the next person. The one who existed eternally before he brought this globe and all of its creatures into existence, the one who depends on no one, who depends on no thing for his eternal life, his eternal existence, he, we contend as Christians, he has rightful authority over all things, over all creatures. We believe that when God authoritatively commands his creatures, that he has the right, simply because he's God, he has the right to expect unconditional obedience from those creatures. But further, and I want you to listen here, further, as Christians, we also believe that God's authority is a good 
authority, a good authority. We believe that God's authority is glorious, that in fact it is something to celebrate. We believe, contrary to the modern idea that power and authority are always oppressive, we believe that when we're talking about God's authority, we're talking about something that is beneficent and that is at work for human freedom, in fact. And we believe that when we talk about the authority of God-breathed Scripture, we are talking about God's divinely authoritative proclamation of freedom in Jesus Christ and rescue in Jesus Christ. In his authoritative word, God authoritatively pronounces freedom wrought by Christ for his human creatures. So that God's authority can certainly be taken by us, and I hope you take it this way, it can be taken as a beautiful, benevolent, beneficial authority. It is far from an oppressive authority. It's far from that. Well, these are just some of our contentions as Christians when it comes to this subject of God's authority and Scripture's authority. Now, a few minutes ago, I mentioned that we would be taking an abbreviated tour uh, through five centuries of history, this week and next. Well, now it's time for that tour to officially get underway. So I I invite you here to sit back, get comfortable, and what I want to do here over this week and next is to give you just a very basic sketch. Admittedly, this is an incredibly limited sketch of some of the key players throughout the last 500 years of church history, key players who either promoted the authority of the Bible or who called that authority into question. And I'm doing this because I want you to be able to trace just a little bit of the history in your own mind in the hope that you will gain a better understanding of why it is that people today, both inside the church and outside the church, are approaching the Bible in the ways that we are. So this morning, we go backward in time, and we begin our tour in the 16th century, about 500 years ago, over in Europe. Haven't you always wanted to visit Europe? Well, here we are. Uh, We want to spend time talking just briefly about the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Now, we as a Baptist church have descended from the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. I think it's important for us to know at least a fact or two about the Reformers and the Reformation itself. Now, the two main figures for the Protestant Reformation were Martin Luther and John Calvin. Now, of course, there were others who played very significant and important roles in the Reformation, but Luther and Calvin are really the two main figureheads. Now, at the time of the Reformation, Luther's main influence 
uh, spread around Germany and also into Scandinavia, while Calvin exercised a major influence, especially in Switzerland and also in France. Now concerning this issue of the authority of the Bible, which is our subject this morning, concerning this issue, the division or the disagreement that boiled up to the surface at the time of the Reformation concerned the question, how shall we understand the relationship between the authority of the Bible and the authority of church tradition. Again, just so we get this, the burning question was, concerning the authority of Scripture, how shall we understand the relationship between the authority of the Bible and the authority of church tradition? How shall those two authorities, the Bible and church tradition, be related to one another if they can be related at all? To put it in the most basic terms, the hot-button question on this topic was, are the scriptures to be considered the supreme and final source of authoritative revelation, or can the Pope of the Roman Church and the councils of the Roman Church be considered equally as authoritative as the scriptures? Again, the issue, are the scriptures to be considered the supreme and final source of authoritative revelation, or can the Pope of the Roman Church and the councils of the Roman Church be considered equally as authoritative as the scriptures? Well, the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli and Martin Bucher and others argued for the former. So they argued that scripture alone is supremely authoritative. They argued that the popes and church councils must come under the authority of the Word of God, under the authority of the Scriptures. That the Scriptures, in fact, could authoritatively correct popes and councils where necessary. The Reformers argued that as for the church, it had been born from the womb of Scripture and not vice versa. In other words, they argued that Scripture had effectively birthed the church. The church had not created Scripture. And they argued further that the church had been entrusted with the Bible and that the church's role was indeed to read the Scriptures and interpret the Scriptures, but that scriptural interpretation did not ultimately depend on the authority of any pope. Rather, they said, scripture is to be interpreted, and this is very important, scripture is to be interpreted within the community of the church by what is called the regula fide. Regula fide is the ancient apostolic teaching. 
And at the end of the day, the reformer said, Scripture is its own interpreter. Very important uh, principle of the Reformation. Scripture is its own interpreter. Scripture interprets Scripture. Harder passages are interpreted by clearer passages. According to the reformers, the church's place, including the popes and the councils, the church's place is to come humbly under the authority of God-breathed Scripture. And as Matthew Barrett says, the reformers argued, quote, they argued that the church is to test all its doctrines by the inerrant standard and authority of the word, close quote. Now, it's important to point out here that when the reformers argued in the ways that we've just outlined, they weren't creating anything very new. In fact, they were arguing the same essential arguments that the early church fathers had argued centuries prior. Well, of course, on the opposite side of the equation, there was the Church of Rome with its popes and councils. They were stubbornly dug in on their position, which was that the pope and the church councils held equal authority with the scriptures. In fact, their argument, the argument that they were making was that the Church of Rome and its Pope were infallible. Maybe you've heard that word before. This is the argument they were making. Now, under this understanding, of course, the inevitable outcome so often was that the Scriptures came to be viewed as inferior in authority to the authority of the Pope and the councils. Now, hopefully in all of this, we can see that coming to the, to the fore in the 16th century was a specific question concerning two possible sources of authority, two possible sources of authority. Again, the question was, did the Bible alone have first place, first and final authority, or did the Roman church share equal authority with the Bible. Well, on the Protestant side of the coin, and again, just to remind you, we as Baptists are Protestants, on the Protestant side of the coin, the principle that emerged out of this time period, it's a very important principle for us to know a little bit about, is called sola scriptura, or scripture alone, which means, in its essence, that scripture alone, the Bible alone, holds the position of supreme, infallible, final authority for the church. This is one of the great principles of the Protestant Reformation, and it's a, it's a principle that we hold dear as Protestant believers here at Snowden Baptist Church. Again, sola scriptura, which says that as the God-exhaled book, Scripture alone holds the position of supreme, infallible, final authority for the church. Now listen, since the Reformation, over the centuries that have elapsed since the Reformation, this concept of sola scriptura has unfortunately been very badly misrepresented 
and misunderstood even within the walls of the Protestant church. Listen, the claim being made with sola scriptura, this is very important, the claim being made is not that scripture is the only authority. Rather, the claim is that scripture is the supreme, infallible, final authority. You see the difference, the important difference there. Again, it's not that Scripture is the only authority whatsoever. It's that Scripture is the supreme, infallible, final authority. The church can indeed, should indeed, be considered as a secondary, derivative authority authorized by Jesus Christ himself, a derivative authority which comes under the primary authority of Scripture. Because after all, did Jesus not bestow an authority on the church to disciple, to baptize, to bind and to loose, to interpret the Bible, to teach the Bible? The church does have a secondary Christ-authorized authority. Now, what do I mean when I say church? When I say church here, what I mean is the community of believers who are alive not only right now across this globe, but the community of believers who date all the way back to the first apostles. We need this church, this trans-historical church. We need this church to help us interpret and understand our Bible. The church community through history is a secondary authority under the primary authority, which is the God-breathed scriptures. And this trans-historical, spirit-filled church is necessary for the right handling and interpretation of the primary authority, the Bible, though the church does not have final authority over the Bible. The church is necessary, though, in the task of interpreting Scripture. In other words, and this is a crucially important point for us evangelicals in 2020, We are talking here about sola scriptura, which we've described, not solo scriptura. There's an important difference. The Protestant Reformation's sola scriptura is not, listen carefully, it's not about me as an autonomous individual deciding what I think the right interpretation of scripture is. It's not about that. And this is a very important point that Keith Matheson labors to point out in his book, The Shape of Sola Scriptura. Matheson observes that it's all too common in our evangelical ranks to have individuals who autonomously develop their own standard for the interpretation of Scripture, which at the end of the day is really based on their own reason and judgment. 
The interpretation of these individuals ends up taking their own reason and judgment as final and supreme authority. And this is certainly not even close to the Protestant idea of sola scriptura, where scripture itself, itself, is the supreme authority even over our reason and our judgment. When a person takes the Bible autonomously and says, here is my interpretation, and this is the way it should be interpreted, this is what Douglas Jones has called solo scriptura, where my own individual reason and judgment are king, and where the church communities, Christ-bestowed authority is denied and neglected. And the situation of solo scriptura is unfortunately rife in our evangelical world, and it is certainly not in keeping with what our Reformation forebears were risking their lives for. As Matheson puts it in his book, quote, in this situation of solo scriptura, where the individual interprets scripture for himself by the supreme authority of his own reason and judgment, in this situation, says Matheson, All that occurs is that one Christian measures the scriptural interpretations of other Christians against the standard of his own scriptural interpretation. Rather than placing the final authority in scripture, as sola scriptura intends to do, this concept of solo scriptura places the final authority in the reason and judgment of each individual believer. And Matheson says the result is, what's the result? He says it's the, the result is the relativism, subjectivism, and theological chaos that we see in modern evangelicalism today. My friend, here is something that I need to understand and that you need to understand and that each and every one of us needs to understand, however unsettling it may be. The fact is that each and every one of us, no matter who we are, doesn't matter who you are, each and every one of us come to the Bible with our own assumptions, with our own blind spots, with our own ignorance. And all of that is gnarled up in our sinfulness. We never come to the Bible in a neutral, completely innocent, totally receptive sort of a way. And so what do we need so desperately? We need the spirit-enlivened community of believers across the ages, the millions of people across the centuries with whom the Spirit lived, we need that church community to help us understand the Bible. We need the church in history to help us come to grips with truth in the Bible that maybe we have simply misread. Truth that may grate hard against our assumptions and the things that we take for granted in 2020 because of the cultural air that we are breathing. We need the church community, the trans-historical church community to help us interpret scripture. 
This is one of the reasons uh, we're doing that pre-sermon segment these days, looking at statements on the nature of the Bible that were hashed out, carefully written, often under the threat of bloodshed, by our ancestors in the faith. Statements that have withstood the test of time for the church, by the church, on the nature of Scripture. See, I would far rather not base my understanding of the Bible on my own opinions, on my own paltry, limited reason, and my all-too-fallible judgments. I would far rather listen humbly and carefully to distillations of truth, conclusions concerning truth that the Spirit has guided his church to over the centuries as the church has carefully and thoughtfully mined the Scriptures. I would rather, far rather, go back to important creeds and important confessions throughout the centuries written by the church as she, as a community, carefully read God's authoritative word under the illumination of the Spirit. Those historical creeds and confessions can help me greatly to understand important doctoral boundaries, important doctoral contours. They can correct my misunderstandings, my false ideas, And the creeds and confessions can actually help me as I try to sort out solutions to some of the contemporary issues that have arisen in our culture and in the church today. You know, so often I find, having been a pastor for 15 years now, so often I find that when a person comes along and makes a rather brazen claim like, Well, the Spirit is the only one I need to help me interpret my Bible. I don't need the church, nor do I need any books aside from the Bible. What it amounts to for that person so often is that really what they want to do is they want to rely on themselves for the interpretation that they wish to promote for their own purposes. Nine times out of ten, the person who says that sort of thing wants to depend on their own conclusions, their own judgments, in an autonomous, individualistic, lone ranger, sort of a proud way that is far less spirit-directed than they'd have people believe. Here's the basic point we've been trying to make over the past couple of minutes. The point is, that there is a great difference between the authority of Scripture itself and the authority claimed by an individual for his or her interpretation of Scripture. I'll say that again. There is a great difference between the authority of Scripture itself and the authority claimed by an individual for his or her interpretation of Scripture. It is the authority of Scripture itself, understood in the Reformation way, understood by the church through the ages, from the apostles on up. It's this understanding of the authority of Scripture that we are promoting here, and I pray it's an understanding that will be recovered in the church, reinstalled in the church, rejoiced over in the church, Uh, especially in the evangelical church today. The fact is, friends, 
that God breathed out the Bible itself, and therefore the Bible itself carries God's supreme authority. When we talk about the Bible being authoritative, we mean, in the words of theologian Millard Erickson, we mean that the Bible possesses the right supremely to define what we are to believe and how we are to conduct ourselves. Close quote. Or, in the words of J.I. Packer, quote, the Christian principle of biblical authority means, on the one hand, that God purposes to direct the belief and behavior of his people through the revealed truth set forth in Holy Scripture. On the other hand, says Packer, it means that all our ideas about God should be measured, tested, and where necessary, corrected and enlarged by reference to the biblical teaching. Close quote. Well, as I said at the beginning today, we are doing more straight teaching here this week and next week than preaching the scriptures themselves, and I'm very aware of that. What I want to do here as we close is to have us focus our hearts and minds on the authoritative scriptures themselves, to focus on the authority that the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the authority that he has exercised to liberate and free his people. The Father, on his holy authority, lovingly sent his Son in the flesh on a divinely authorized rescue mission to be the Savior of the world. Now, we prove every single day of our lives in this world, we prove that we desperately need the rescue that God has orchestrated, a rescue that comes from outside of ourselves. I think you'd agree with me if I said that we as human beings, we've tried everything, right? We've tried everything on our own to make the world good, to make the world fair, to make the world a just place and a peaceful place. And our track record as human beings remains laughable. On the whole, it remains laughable. How desperately we need intervention from outside our world. How desperately we need a rescue that is not of our own making. And on the Father's authority, Jesus was sent to rescue and deliver us. And Jesus the Son came teaching with what we might call an eerie authority. It was a supernatural authority. It was an authority that was just plain foreign to our everyday. Mark 1.22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Jesus came authoritatively, divinely authoritatively teaching 
all the while abiding by the authority of the Father who had sent him. And Jesus came confirming and he came vindicating the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. He came saying, as he does in John 10, 35, saying that scripture cannot be broken. And more than that, Jesus came knowing that he, he himself was indeed the key to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. He was the key. He came personally and authoritatively to fulfill those scriptures as no one else could ever do. Matthew 5.17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures. On the holy, eternal authority of the Father, Jesus was authorized as authoritative Savior of the world, and now the crucified and risen Jesus declares this day to every inhabitant across the entire world, he declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been, been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. We have a universal authority indeed. His name is Jesus. His authority over all things is a comprehensive authority and it is a final authority. And this God-breathed book called the Bible is the God-produced authoritative announcement of Jesus. It's the announcement of him from Genesis straight through Revelation. And the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity who authored the Bible, he serves in the world to bring people to a recognition that the Bible is God's authoritative word. The Spirit illumines the Bible for the church. He convicts hearts. The Spirit persuades hearts. He speaks to hearts by his word. The Spirit witnesses and he magnifies Jesus to minds and hearts and he does that by his word. If the Bible itself is what Millard Erickson has called the objective dimension of God's authority, the Holy Spirit is the subjective dimension of God's authority who works in concert with the word to promote and declare the authority of Jesus. Later on in this sermon series, we will devote an entire sermon to the spirit and the word. For now we say, all praise, honor, and glory to Father, Son, and Spirit. We thank God that he has exercised and that he continues to exercise his good authority, his freeing authority, his loving authority in our world. We thank him that he has sent his son Jesus Christ to live, be crucified, risen, ascended, and coming again. And we thank him that he has breathed into our world his authoritative word. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful people, amazed people. Our jaw drops at the fact 
that you have given us your holy word to direct, to guide us, to give us instruction while we live our four score and 20 on this planet. Lord, we thank you that you've given us your word so that we can delight in it, eat from it, drink from it. We thank you that you have not left us without this blessed revelation. And I pray, Lord, that you would continue to fire up hearts and increase hunger and thirst for your word in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.